Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. If your newsletter is a core focus for your marketing strategy right now, you have to take a look at Sparkloop. Sparkloop allows you to set up a referral program directly in your emails. Simply connect to your newsletter software, set up the rewards to incentivize your subscribers, and then go about business as usual, creating outstanding content. And then watch as your newsletter growth makes a noticeable and sustainable jump up forever. Nicholas Platt of the Lifespan newsletter said that they grew their newsletter to almost 50,000 subscribers in just five months, and Sparkloop was the key to that growth. Check them out at sparkloop.app slash EIM. On the show today is Taylor Lagasse, who is the co-founder of Kinship, an influencer marketing agency. And I wanted to bring him on because unlike a lot of others in the influencer marketing space, Taylor actually knows his stuff. He's actually been there and done that. In fact, he has basically helped pioneer many of the cutting edge strategies that are working today successfully for brands. So hear about Taylor's thoughts on micro versus larger influencers how they approach sourcing influencers and structuring the deals, and their unique influencer white labeling strategy that will blow your mind. So to start out, I would love to know, did you ever think that you'd be doing influencer marketing for a living? Um, I mean, yeah, honestly, my entire experience within kind of the workforce has been within influencer marketing, dating all the way back to college um, and every job since before starting Kinship two years ago has been within the space to a, in a certain degree. So yeah, wow. I did, I did honestly think so. Well, so walk me through, um, like today you're sort of the managing partner of Kinship influencer marketing agency. What were the steps that got you to where you are to today? And also that kind of, uh, answers the question of how you thought that you'd get into this space in the first place. Yeah. Um, well in college, you know, did you know the gamut of jobs just to try to figure out what it is I wanted to do. But one of the things that we did in college, I played football at UCLA uh, during my time uh, in those years. And one of my teammates was Justin Combs, who is uh, P. Diddy's son. Um, mm-hmm. And we played in the same position group. We were both defensive backs. We got pretty close. And so myself, Justin, and another teammate, Kenny Orgioke, started a company we called Tonight. And basically what it was, was just an events company um, where we had product placement from brands there. We had ticket sales. We had an artist come, you know, do a show. But every single bit of it was driven by Justin's social media presence and him pushing it. And all sales happened through that. All vendors wanted to sponsor it because of him and his name. And so from very early on within my college years with that company, really got to see firsthand the power of influencer marketing. And so that really intrigued me. Um, following college, I didn't want to be an events you know, person for my life. So I actually transitioned to a talent agency called Athletes First. Uh, it's an NFL agency. So they represent people like Clay Matthews, Aaron Rodgers, uh, Deshaun Watson. And so if you think about, I worked in the marketing department there. So like Aaron Rodgers and State Farm, you know, athletes first help coordinate that deal. If you're familiar with those, like yeah. Patrick Mahomes commercials. Um, from there, transitioned to Common Thread Collective, where I went to the paid media side and kind of a growth agency um, with Facebook advertising, really got to see, okay, how when you implement influencers into this side of things within marketing, how can you scale this? That became incredibly interesting to me. And from there, took all of that kind of holistic experience and started Kinship about two years ago. 
So every every bit of it was influencer. At Common Thread, I was building out the influencer department there on behalf of their clients. Hmm. I, I'd love to hone in on a couple of those here for a second. Going Please. back to uh, the college days, playing football, um, uh, and, and running these events. Like, what was it that sort of um, what was the aha moment that made it click for you that, oh, there's something interesting here. I'd like to do more in this space. I think a lot of people, uh, especially in the early days, right? You, I remember for myself when I first had my first experience with uh, events and conferences, I was, I was kind of like, yeah, I don't think I want to do this. But for you, you had the opposite experience. So what was it about that that sort of drew you in and made you want to go uh, kind of double down on it? Within the event space in college? Yeah, an, yeah events and influencers, you know, working with, again, P. Diddy's son. Yeah, well, so long term, I didn't want to do the events. I, I knew I wanted to transition out of that after college, but within it, so the initial idea, I, I guess I'll just give you greater context at this point. The initial idea, yeah. we wanted to launch an app called Tonight, and basically it was, it was just geolocated experiences near you where you were at, uh, at discounted uh, rates. And so what's going on tonight near me? And kind of the events company was just kind of to raise funds to ultimately invest in that creation of that app and launching that. But it ultimately just became this events company that we were able to push and sell and make money off of literally just from like Justin doing a couple organic posts and the thing would sell out. Um, and I don't know if organic social has as much, and we'll talk about that today, as much power as it used to, the algorithms become a little bit more limited. Um, but that was enough to definitely intrigue me to stay within the space and see how we can continue to use people like Justin and other influencers in different spaces on behalf of different brands to win and scale on behalf of your business, whatever the service mm. or product is. Yeah. Yeah. Did you uh, like want to be an influencer yourself or like, is it something no. that you feel like you have to be, um, you know, it wasn't more like working with the influencer that sort of drew you into the space or like wanted to be an influencer. There's sort of, you know, two ways you can kind of uh, be intrigued by something, right? No, I never wanted to be an influencer, man. Um, I wouldn't mind being like a travel influencer where they pay you to go to hotels and whatnot across the world. That sounds <laughs> right. pretty, pretty sweet. But no, I, I was just, you know, as a college student, you're just seeing, you know, these sales go through the roof and you're just like, what in the world? And, he, and he, it's literally the sole driving mechanism. So hmm. I think anybody with that experience in my shoes at that time would have their eyes kind of, whoa, just opened up to this reality of the power of influencer marketing here. Yeah, right. And not everyone can be P. Diddy's son either, right? No, it's sort of not no, something no. that you you can just, be, oh, I think I'd like to be an influencer. And then you would go and uh, get famous somehow, right? It's just a lot of hard work and luck and uh, yeah. other things, other factors involved. Um, to hone in on uh, athletes first for a second too, like what was your experience like there? Um, who did you work with? And like, what were the types of, you mentioned Aaron Rodgers, uh, Clay Matthews, who I remember actually, uh, back in high school, I remember watching his Cribs sort of episode and like being able to sort of get a peek into an athlete's life. But give us the behind the scenes and what it's like to actually work with big time athletes like them. Yeah. So athletes first, you know, it was a really cool experience, obviously. Like um, you're, you're sourcing marketing deals on behalf of NFL talent that are household names that you grew up watching. And obviously I was a ball player. So these are all people that I obviously had high affinity with and really enjoyed uh, working on behalf of. Um, and just being in the locker room at UCLA with these guys, you, you really realize that a lot of these people have all their eggs in this basket, and this is going to be their main mechanism of making money in their lifetime. And so you really do have a passion and kind of pride and purpose in trying to do this for them. But the thing at, you know, like these big talent agencies, even outside of just the NFL 
uh, in professional sports like at WME or UTA or CAA, their marketing approaches can be somewhat archaic and it's not really based off sales or attribution to those sort of things. They're just selling kind of the stardom of these players. And that's why you should work with them. Um, Oh, you should work with Aaron Rodgers because he's Aaron Rodgers. Um, And, you know, that brand lift that you'll get and the brand equity, which is true, but there wasn't much follow through with this is why, and this is the attribution that you can see through working with them and the amount of sales and ROI that it'll generate for you in the long term. Like it, because you get the brand lift through them with this, this is what it means for your growth, you know, over the next couple of years and what it could do for you. There wasn't that much of that going on, which really was the draw for me to go to Common Thread, where everything was attributable through Facebook uh, paid media um, and pairing mm-hmm. up influencers in that in that way. So that was a huge draw for me, but nonetheless, great experience, great team. Those guys do a phenomenal job athletes first and taking care of their athletes. Um, but from a marketing standpoint, in order to grow, uh, my own capabilities, I wanted to, to move on onto common thread. Yeah. So how'd you get started with common thread? I mean, I, I know now it's a very well-renowned and established and reputable agency. I just talked with uh, Taylor holiday the other day oh, no for an episode of this. Yeah. That's awesome. And he recommended you as well. Um, but not everyone gets a chance to work with Taylor or to work within common thread. How'd you get your start there? Did, did he tell you in what capacity I worked with him? A little bit. Yeah. So uh, athletes first, one of our clients was Jordan Palmer, uh, Carson yeah. Palmer's little brother. They were both one of our clients. Um, and at, right after college, I actually was connected with Jordan because my quarterback at UCLA trained with him. Um, mm-hmm. That's how I really got to know him well, because I lived with him as well as Deshaun Watson while they trained the year oh, that wow. we all came out of college. So I got to know him really well. Um, and he knew I was working at athletes first, connect with him, talk shop a lot. Uh, and then he ultimately introduced me to Taylor Holiday, brought me on, hired me as the influencer marketing lead. Um, and I actually did that for a couple of months. And then I became Taylor Holiday's like entrepreneur apprentice per se, which was a position at Common Thread that basically grooms you up to ultimately launch your own company. So Common Thread and Taylor Holiday seed funded and is a partner in kinship. Um, so they're very much so intertwined into, you know, our business. Yeah, I love it. That's an amazing. Um, Taylor talked really, really highly of uh, sort of the the ability to network and to build relationships and to sort of use your established credibility and experience to your advantage. And that seems like that's something that also has followed along your kind of uh, thread of your career as well. Yeah, I was very fortunate. Being able to come under Taylor Holiday was definitely, uh, yeah. I mean, the guy's a brilliant mind. Um, showed me a lot of things that I was craving for when I, you know, again, going back to athletes first, what I was craving is just attribution, attribution, attribution. That man is all about that. Very methodical mm-hmm. thinker when it comes to marketing. Um, and he's able to break things down incredibly well for people. So it was an amazing learning experience, amazing experience to be able to grow and definitely propelled me to where I am now. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you had mentioned that uh, there's sort of an archaic way of doing influence, influencer marketing a little bit. And now there's a new kind of modern way. Um, I can imagine you know, a lot of people say, uh, oh, well, influencer marketing, you know, only works for these types of companies or it doesn't work or it didn't work for me. Like when you hear those kind of um, naysayers or criticism, like what do you what do you tell them or what do you what's, what's going through your mind? I just tell them what I used to do, honestly, at athletes first. <laughs> Like, because influencer marketing, because okay, athletes first, like a Twitter post from Aaron Rodgers was like 50,000 bucks, like just for a one liner and maybe you get a tag. And it's just like, 
pay for post model is just so it's dead. Um, and that's where you're going to get people that say influencer marketing is a scam. It doesn't work. It's not scalable. Like I want to do it. That's where that comes into play when you're paying for posts. One, like, again, to go back to what I was saying previously, when Justin was posting on our behalf and it actually worked, the social algorithms across the board with social you know, media networks and platforms, the algorithm has become limited in its ability to reach people, the amount of engagement you get, the amount of impressions, and obviously the frequency of it, meaning just like the amount of times that content's actually served to people. It's one time and it ceased to really make an impact post 24 hours. So it's very limited in its ability these days to make an impact. And not even to mention, like, you don't really have the ability to drive traffic directly to a website outside of Instagram stories or a link in the bio. But that's just an added inconvenient step that we know nobody's really going to take or there's going to be a significant drop off in the amount of people that do. So all that to say, like paying big bucks for an organic post, if you're looking for immediate ROI, I, I would not recommend it. Um, but instead, like if you want to win on organic social you just need to mass seed your product or mass seed uh, the usage of your service, whatever it may be. Um, and through that mechanism, you're obviously getting whoever posts about it organically free of cost. Um, you just need to take into consideration what is you know, the cost of your goods to actually mm -hmm. ship that out. But that's what we recommend uh, to all of our clients and all the people that we work with. Mass seed out your product, figure out at that point and let them know, hey, you're a great representation of our brand and your reach out to them. We think you'd absolutely love what we have to offer. We'd love to ship it to you and let you have it free of cost. No strings attached. Uh, we don't want you to do anything in return. Just hope you enjoy it. Let us know your thoughts. Seed it out to everybody that you know opts in for that. And then just watch. You'll be able to see who posts organically for free. Then you're able to identify who those brand advocates are. And again, you didn't pay for any of these posts and you'll see your money goes a lot further. Hmm. So, so what, what makes a product or maybe a business like a good fit for influencer marketing versus, uh, not a good fit. I also imagine, for example, you know, um, what if someone can't just mass seed their, their product out to a whole bunch of influencers sure. that, that they have identified, um, or maybe it's a, a high cost, uh, product where it's, you know, two, $300 a pair of Bose headphones yeah. or something like that. Uh, is there, are there, is there a certain criteria that you like to work with, um, that, that you feel like every time it's a, not a home run, but you know that it's going to increase the chance for success. There's definitely a, there's definitely one I would prefer on my end to like work with. Um, but regardless, I recommend the strategy for all product services. Hmm. What, what, so to give you an example, like we're doing two seating campaigns, one on behalf of Kalo silicone wedding rings, their cogs are, is literally not even a dollar. So hmm. they can send out, you bring up a great point, you know, a thousand rings per month and it's not going to really make a dent on what it is they're trying to accomplish. So they can really crush this um, space. Now, another brand that we're doing this with is, you know, Dozen Boxing. It's an at-home fitness center, pretty much a full setup. You got your, you, your, your punching dummy, the mannequin, you got your jump ropes, you got, you got your weights, you got the whole flooring. Like it's, it's a $200 like cogs, uh, maybe 250. So you're obviously able to see much less, but nonetheless, I would still recommend identifying, you know, several people that you're able to do so allocate a certain, you know, amount of budget towards influencer and let that be a part of it. Uh, and we do have a recommendation of how much we think you should budget based off your annual revenue uh, towards mm -hmm. influencer and just put that influencer cogs of seating within that. So, hmm. 
Interesting. Okay. So there's, there's a whole bunch of things we can hone in on there. I'd love to basically run the gambit of like, uh, from start to finish end to end sort of influencer marketing. Maybe we can start here, which is, uh, probably that first kind of bottleneck and that first crux of how do you find and source influencers and how do you even choose who to work with as well? Yeah. Great, great question. So, and it's actually a perfect time for that question as well. So brand collapse manager, is Facebook's new uh, influencer identification tool, actually just influencer tool at large. It's gonna be able to allow you to communicate all these different things, uh, source content on there, gain whitelisting access. I'm sure we'll go into deeper detail about what whitelisting is later. Um, but the main thing that they're really trying to build out in a robust, robust way right now is identification. And so Facebook, Instagram, everything will be on there, demographics, personas, anything you could possibly imagine um, and again, they, they are like the mothership of all data in, in comparison to like, you know, Grin. And we use Tagger currently. Uh, uh, Brand Clouds Manager is still, it's not fully there. They're onboarding a ton of people right now. And they're not going to have any issue doing that. Obviously, they're Facebook. But right. right now, we still are using platform like Tagger because it's a little bit more robust in its capabilities currently. But if there's a time to get on something for free, I would definitely get on Brand Clouds Manager. Um, mm -hmm. Again, you're able to filter through anything you'd possibly want to to be able to identify the right influencer for your brand. And at that point, once you identified that list, and again, when we work with brands, we try to identify 300 per month um, at a minimum. We're reaching out to all of them, email, DM, which a majority of these people have their email linked in their Instagram. So you'd be able to source that really easily. Reach out to all of them, ideally 50% opt in to receive the product. And honestly, from there, you'll see 30 to 50% of those people actually post organically. And if you think about that, that 30 to 50% of people posting, so that's like 50 to 75 people, think about how much you would need to pay 50 to 75 people to post. Just think about that cost and then compare that to the cogs that you did, which you would have to ship it out anyways to get them the product to post. So literally those costs cancel. So you just saved, you know, whatever the cost is to 50 to 75 posts, which is a decent penny, mm -hmm. like yeah. 500 to a thousand bucks for an organic post per se. Let's just say that conservatively that's yeah. You just save that amount of money compared to tens of thousands. Right. Usually. Right. Right. And these are all, and not only that, like you didn't, it's, it's an organic, authentic brand advocate. They, they're mm -hmm. just going and posting on your behalf. So it's like, it's, it's a win-win. Mm. So for, for anyone who doesn't opt in, are you trying to get them on board later or you just sort of like leave them behind and you're, you know, working the next list or the next batch that you're trying to reach out to? So we always follow up at least twice on both DM and email, but at that point we don't really follow, follow up with them again. They're obviously not interested or they're just not, you know, we do want to find people that are easy to work with as well, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if we work with them in the future and we know we need content for a campaign with quick turnaround, like, are they just going to respond in a month? So we typically, right. we typically just leave it be after that if we don't receive a response, but you know, over the next two weeks to a month, you know, people trickle in that respond late that we'll still send product to for sure. Um, right. But if they never respond, like we just, we just leave it be. Hmm. And then I, I would imagine like for someone who's a little bit more high profile or maybe, you know, well-established, like, are they open to just receiving free product? And then like, they also have a high, you know, 30 to 50% chance of posting organically, or for someone who's a little bit more high profile, is it sort of like a different, 
a different playbook or a different method that you're using to try to get them to, to post or establish a relationship with them? So same method. Um, and quite honestly, we typically focus on seeding micro-influencers. And I'll just break that down real quick. Micro, how we define it, 10 to 100,000 followers, mid-tier about you know 100 to 400,000 followers, 450, 450 to a million, macro, million plus celebrity, something along those lines. So we'll see people within each category, but the main one we predominantly seed is micro. And for a variety of reasons, one, this is typically we're laying the foundations of your influencer program. We want to start with micros, you know, figure out who within the influencer space, persona wise, demographic wise, really resonates and converts on behalf of your brand. Two, greater opt-in to answer your question directly, greater opt-in to receive the product, greater opt-in to actually post about the product, tag the product, et cetera. So we can get more content, more organic social conversation going. And not, not to mention micros on average have greater engagement, have greater impression, greater reach, and it's a denser audience. And so you're able to identify a really dense audience on behalf of your brand that you're trying to target. So you come to greater learnings. A macro influencer, there's a variety of different reasons people follow that person. So that audience can be very diverse. But the micro people follow that person typically for one to two reasons. So you can really hone in and figure out, does this audience resonate with my brand? Hmm, interesting. And then for the people that you're seating with um, and that you're, you're, you're trying to go out and find through, you know, Facebook Clouds Manager or Tagger or whatever else, what other, you know, platform you're using to identify, like, how are you finding them? Are you looking for just sort of uh, anyone and anyone, is there a criteria for who you reach out to depending on the brand or the product? Yeah, no, great question. Uh, well, yes, definitely. And typically we work with the brand to figure out and identify exactly that. Like, you know, when we do this, we typically ask for like, can we get access to Google analytics? Can we get access to your Facebook ad account and see what type of creative they're running? What type of language they use? What type of audience is converting on behalf of their brand? Take that all into consideration and then pretty much use that as our filtering system when identifying these influencers. So all of that goes into it. But the main thing we're looking for here, Corey, is content creation ability. Can these people create great video content? Can they go on camera, speak and articulate brand talking points, uh, communicate value props? And most importantly, can they sell products? Are these people salespeople? Um, can they capture my attention within the first three seconds of the video? Are they going to actually acquire the impression people are capturing their attention and watching the content and consuming it and get them to take the next steps in their customer journey and ultimately become a purchaser? That's the lens we're looking at these people through when we're judging, hey, is this person worth seeding this product to? Would they ultimately be able to become a creator for our brand um, and give us content that will convert? Yeah, honestly. So that's the main thing we're looking for. Obviously it has to be a brand fit aligned with what it is they're trying to do, but content creation ability is the number one thing we're checking out. So then you're actually going through and you're looking at um, uh, if they're a YouTuber, you know, what kind of videos they're producing and how they're talking about yeah. other brands, or if they're uh, an Instagrammer, what kinds of things that they're posting about? Is it video? Is it mostly, you know, still images? Is it uh, reels? Um, like what, how are you evaluating to see if they're, you know, kind of fit the criteria of a creator versus um, also like what's yeah. the alternative? Is it just someone who um, is a personality and, you know, doesn't create content? Like what's the, the opposite of that? If I don't know they can create great video content, I've never worked with them. I've never mm -hmm. reached out to them. That is 100% always on the checklist. 
Uh, it's the number one most valuable thing. And it's the main reason, it's the main value out of the space. And that's really what I learned at Common Thread. Content that sells, that's what's most important. Creative is what scales ad accounts and that's what scales businesses. And so great content creators makes phenomenal creative. And we'll go into that further probably later on in this conversation as well. Um, but it ultimately is actually cheaper to acquire than like studio shoots and it outperforms these things. So there's a lot of value there. Mm -hmm. So if they can't create great video content, if I don't see that, I ultimately won't move forward with them. But you brought up two great uh, places to be able to check out if they have that ability. YouTube, if they have the YouTube, it makes my job incredibly easy. Just go there, see, you know, there's 15 minutes of content of them talking. And so being able to get a good assessment of that ability with that influencer right there, perfect. If they don't have a YouTube, typically IG highlights. If they have a lot of highlights of stories um, that they've created on their Instagram, that's another great place to check out. Um, and it's, it's not like they need to be pushing a ton of video content all the time. Does that make my job easier in assessing if this person's worth uh, working with? Of course, but I, I just need to see one bit of content to give me, you know, the judgment call is this person worth uh, working with investing in and seeding product to. Yeah, yeah. What are the other platforms usually that you see the those type of creators um, publishing on? You know, there's YouTube, there's Instagram, which are probably like the big, uh, the big two. I'm assuming Instagram is kind of like the t at the top of that list as well. Um, but what, what are the other platforms or channels that you're seeing, uh, you know, influencers that make great creators publish on? Yeah, I mean, TikTok's obviously great too, because um, that's just a new piece of. You don't get the the ability to see their uh, speaking ability a lot of the time on TikTok, but there's certain pieces of content. There's actually like one piece of content that. I really like to source a part of the kind of diverse set of content that we try to get uh, brands to use out of like IGC influencer generated content. Um, so TikTok, they have like, you know, you've probably seen this content type now where they throw a shirt on. It's just like out of the, the out of nowhere and just pops on their chest. And, and so the, those sorts of content creators are great. And that was work that, that works awesome as ads. The only thing I'm not able to assess obviously is their speaking ability, which is the, still the most valuable thing, but this does give you another piece of content that could convert out of the portfolio that we're trying to acquire for the brand. Um, so TikTok, um, Facebook live used to be one a couple years ago. Obviously that would provide, you know, live talk, talking uh, creation ability. It's not as much of a thing anymore. So predominantly Instagram stories, and YouTube is where we really hone in to check this out though. Hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, TikTok because it always reminds me of how um, constraints kind of breed creativity, you know, especially TikTok, you see people, it used to be sort of like the time limit, um, but now you see all sorts of different uh, constraints, like just the way that you use videos and mm -hmm. um, the ways you can sort of mirror and then interact with other creators. And it really just sort of like pushes the limit for how creative someone can be, right? And that, that really sure. starts to separate sort of the the regular people versus the really creative people who might be a good fit to work with yeah no i mean tiktok is a, an incredible platform to figure out of these creative individuals because there's so many different capabilities in their in the way that they're making this content like i, I the form of content that we just discussed like all these things just popping on people like it it's incredibly captivating thumb stopping everything you want a piece of creative to be and so yeah tiktok's awesome the only yeah. thing is with these platforms is that, and this is something we haven't touched on, uh, when it comes to influencer, we definitely see the way to scale your 
marketing with influencers through paid media and mm. ads and sponsored and just TikTok and Twitter and um, Snapchat. These machine learning systems are not as sophisticated as Facebook and Instagram is at this point. And so being able to scale, target, find the people that are ultimately going to purchase your product when running this influencer content as ads, it's just not as effective. Um, so we really try to identify these creators who can create great video content, repurpose this on Facebook ads, Instagram ads, scale it there for distribution purposes. Um, so that's, that's also the main reason that we're really honing on that platform specifically. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I definitely want to get back to the scaling, but take me back to, so sort of step two of the process of, you know, you, you found some influencers, you see the product, you're seeing who's, you know, might be a good fit to work with and who seems to be uh, a good fit for the brand, whether it's sort of, you know, culturally and, and with values, but also who's actually engaging with the product and seems to have some sort mm -hmm. of response in a way. Um, what's step two there? Like, are you then reaching out to sort of pitch uh, more of like a deal quote unquote, or how do you build a relationship with an influencer after you've already seen the product? You just did a phenomenal job at what I just warned you would happen. I went to <laughs> step Z, the final step, and you right. said, wait, 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 let's bring it back. Um, no, this is great. We'll, we'll, we'll figure out and identify every step of the way. So once we see the product, the people that opt in, right, we use this tool. I'm just probably going to give you the full blueprint of the tech stack that we use. Love it. Um, we use a tool called Mighty Scout at this point. And Mighty Scout is an incredible tool that we actually start using within the last year. So instead of like figuring out and being having like a 24 hour watch person on organic social to see who's posting, like, oh my gosh, did I miss it? What happened? And, you know, trying to aggregate analytics associated with it, following up with these people to see if you can, if they can send you that content for you to be able to use. Mighty Scout does all of that uh, in real time. So, Basically, out of all the people that you seeded, all you have to do is upload their socials into the system. And it's literally just like copy and paste, boom, upload it, you're in. And then over the next couple of weeks, it just automatically sources the content that's posted. It shows you how much, how many people that post reached, how many people uh, engaged with it, the comments on it. It just puts that post right there for you. You can literally download the content. Uh, from it as well. So if it was a video, you now have that video. If it's a photo, you can now download that photo. And then you can just follow up with them on there. If you want to see if you can use it, hey, we would love to uh, repurpose this across our marketing channels, get the approval from them. And it's literally that simple. So hmm. we use that and it's, a, it's, like, it's like a dollar per person that you put on the platform. So if 150 people opt in for the seeding campaign, you got it's a $150 cost. Like instead of paying a full-time employee just to like be scraping all this because that is a full-time right. job it's yeah. like that especially at that level of scale so that's an incredible piece um as a tool to be able to leverage so from there that's just the next step i wanted to give you a brief explanation of that tool love it uh, out of all the people that did post we're following up with them uh, and we're gauging out of all these people that became these brand advocates for free who out of those people are the best content creators and so from that list we Kind of narrowed down say 50 to 75 posted we want to identify the five people that are the best of the best out of all of them or maybe we identify 20 you know 20 to 30 but over that next month we want to source content from five of them in a more official capacity and so typically when we work with these people we'll source three videos 
one image and then we'll have them do an IG story as like a cherry on top. Um, again, we don't, we don't care and put too much value in the organic distribution of part of these deals per se. The main, the main driving force of this and the main reason of it is we want to be able to repurpose that content. Like I'm saying, when we source it from influencers and contract them into paid media, we think our ability to distribute this content is a much more effective mechanism of scale than using influencers and paying them for their own channel as a distribution uh, audience, as a distribution channel. Their value is the content that will ultimately sell when we can control it and distribute it. So mm-hmm. we're identifying the best content creators that became brand advocates. And what you'll see at this step is if we had tried to reach out to these five, 10, 20 people that we just identified as the top 20 creators and just started the relationship uh, with, hey, we think you'd be a great rep of our brand. We like to pay you to play, um, create this content for us and you'll get X. Like you might get an agent introduced to you. You might just get, they're automatically have their negotiating cap on, no relationship has mm. been built, et cetera. We've seen those price points be double what we ultimately are able to get them at for when we actually contract them for this more expansive deal with three videos and image, et cetera. So you built great report with 150 people that we like to say all are great content creators. Cause again, this goes into our filtering system of who are even seeding, but we do like to even hone that even further. Okay. Who are the best of the best out of these people? So you do get brand advocates, cheaper costs, the best, of the best, and have plenty of people to work with and choose from. So that's the next step of the process. Wow. That's fascinating. Well, one of the things that just popped in my mind, it might be a little bit tangential, but um, I would have to imagine when you're seeding so many products uh, between influencers and you're, you know, you're working with different clients, maybe my, my understanding of uh, the world is much smaller than it actually is, but do you ever get influencers who, you know, you're seeding products with who maybe you decide not to work with for a certain brand, but then you might seed them again with another product and maybe work with them on another brand, or is there ever uh, an overlap or maybe like a, you know, Hey, uh, it's not gonna work out for this one, but like, you know, let's keep in touch for maybe another opportunity later on. For sure. Yeah. And our agency doesn't necessarily represent a roster of talent. Um, we, we don't actually at all. We, we like to always source and contract and identify the people that make most sense for brands, but that's not to say we haven't worked with the same people more than once. Uh, that makes mm-hmm. sense for a variety of different brands. Um, so to answer your question, yeah, we've seeded product on behalf of different brands to the same person numerous times. Um, obviously it wouldn't make sense to seed them like a competitive brand and within the right. same space. So we don't do that. That jeopardizes the brand and the influencer alike. So it doesn't really work out for anybody. Um, so that's how I'd answer that question. Yeah. I was, I was just thinking from their perspective of an influencer, um, if you're receiving so many products, uh, or if they're, you know, they're only rece- receiving a few and then they're getting in contact with maybe um, the representative and in your case, you know, might be you, the agency, or it might be directly with the brand. Uh, and then they might, you know, um, they might get a few and maybe it might be um, you right as the agency working with them. And that be, that, that helps them build a rapport with you and you with them. And if you're oh, saying, yeah. Hey, it's not going to be a good shot for this one, but Hey, we're going to be sending you some more later on. Right. And uh, we really want to work with you, but I don't think it's going to be a good fit mutually uh, based on what we've seen so far. And so let's look for another opportunity later down the line. Yeah, no. And that happened. I mean, I don't know if that exact scenario takes place uh, too often, but because 
if we're seeding them, like we don't need to follow up with them after that. We don't, we're not setting expectations like, Hey, mm-hmm. we're going to seed you first. And then we're going to follow up in two, three weeks to see if we can do something more expansive. The first initial touch point is, Hey, we, we think you're just going to love this product. We want to give it to you. No strings attached. Obviously in the back oh, of our right, mind, right. we're thinking long-term and we want to build out our community and we think we can tap on them for cheaper costs in the future. We do want to work with them. And we do think there's going to be something there potentially. And that's what we're laying the foundations for. But on their end, all they've been communicated as, hey, we think you're, love, you're going to love this product. We just want to gift it to you. What's your address? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only touch point that they have with us. So no expectations have been set. So we don't really have to like revisit conversations in that way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. So again, I think my understanding was uh, was sort of, I didn't have the, the full picture, but that actually puts you in a lot better position than with anyone that you're seeding with because there are no expectations of there's no breakup um, conversations right it's just all free stuff for them and they're like great we love these guys that are seeding us products and uh right you know this is fun and there there's low commitment on their end where they don't feel like they have to you know they're having their arm pulled for certain pieces of you know content right out the gate or they have to again put their negotiation hat on um, but then you really get to to give and establish that relationship before you have that more serious conversation you just nailed it. Yeah. We're trying to build as many relationships on giving and not asking as possible. Hmm. So then once you do have that pitch and once you do feel like, okay, we've identified the five to 20, for example, who we think might be a much, uh, you know, maybe like a long-term fit. How do you pitch them? Like what are, what are the sort of different deal structures or formats? I mean, and how do you choose what might be the best fit for each one of those influencers? Yeah. Great question. So the criteria of who's the best kind of, we've already done the filtering system, you know, by selecting those 300. So nothing's really changed there. Um, But how we go about those next steps. And again, I'm just going to give you the entire toolbox here. We will, we just reach out to them with an email. Hey, one, we hope you love the product. Um, We'd actually love to work with you in a more expansive way. We think you're a phenomenal content creator and we'd love to be able to create some content with you for purposes, you know, as basically, especially within this season specifically as an alternative for studio shoots being shut down. We'd love to be able to tap on you as that kind of creator hub. Um, Mm. And and basically we'll, especially with a micro influencer um, again, 10,000 followers to hundred thousand followers. We'll start the negotiation process at, Hey, we have, we'll just, this is just language we use somewhat of a limited budget here. Um, We'd love to be able to pay you $150 for three videos and image. Now that is not standard rates. That is not standard rates, but we have a lot of people to work. We have a lot of people to send that message to, to figure out who would and will opt in for that. And again, a lot of these people do bring down their price points because they do love your brand. Um, They did post about it for free. They are advocates. And so they're more likely to do these sort of things, but we just have a back and forth flow where it goes from 150 okay, okay, no, we need to get a little bit of greater budget. We go to 300. Then we typically max it out between 500 to 1,000, depending on how badly uh, we want to work with somebody. So that's how we typically, if you do this exact strategy uh, in this methodical way, you can typically get people for all those deliverables under 1,000 bucks. And you'll see mm-hmm. people, some people opt in for 150. Um, and if you really want to, if you, if you really are a hustler, start it out at you know more free products. So- it's right. just a negotiation back and forth that you can be able to use that we typically do. And and the ask every time is basically that sort of content deliverable package of yeah. a video, a post, uh, and, and a story of, of some kind, or, um, what, what are the three that you're looking for? 
Yeah, so three videos, one image, and a story post. Again, the story post is just kind of a cherry on top. Uh, the image is just, it's not the most important thing, but if you want to repurpose it on email, on landing pages, et cetera, you can be able to do so. But video mm -hmm. content for paid media purposes always outperforms still majority from what we've seen. Um, it is a lot more powerful and captivating than thumb stopping as an ad. So the three videos, we just want to get a variety of content. So if you work with five creators, I mean, you, that's 15 unique videos at the end of the day. Um, and what goes into that? And I'd be happy if anybody, you know, within this podcast listening, we use um, uh, a creative brief for these influencers that basically lays out, you know, what type of scenes we want them to capture, what, what talking points do we want them to mm. include how to go about the initial three seconds of the video to make sure they capture attention. Um, all these things go into the creative brief that we're ultimately sending them for these three videos. And again, that's where we do our deep dive into brands ad accounts, what type of language they're using, what type of creative currently in that ad account is converting. We try to bring that all to life through these you know, influencers and the IGC, again, the influencer generated content they're creating into the creative brief. And another thing I'll mention on that point is you don't want to send the same templated creative briefs to everybody. Like a lot of brands, you know, hmm. you know, within the space, when they are sourcing organic social posts and within these campaigns, it's like, use this hashtag, you know, use this caption. And it's like all the same. Um, this is not how you go about this. What we're trying to do here. If you think about paid media and what you're able to do through Facebook ads, you have a customer journey, you know, first touch point, second touch point, third touch point, all the way from top of the funnel to the bottom of the funnel. How do you want to be using this influencer content to communicate at each level of this customer journey to walk people through, you know, that funnel to their first purchase, create content with individual people to do just that every step of the way. That's how you need to be thinking about that. Mm. And so for, for the three videos, uh, the image and the story are then asking them to post it and then basically give you the rights to pre-purpose it for paid media, or is it only for the paid media purposes? Uh, so we always contract it for full ownership and perpetuity. So the content now is completely ours. Yeah. So, so why that approach, right? So I think a lot of the uh, maybe traditional or maybe, maybe sort of um, outdated uh, approach to influencer marketing would be, well, the second step would be, let's just figure out a deal to get uh, sort of the paper post model, right? Where maybe it's uh, every month, you know, you now post three things a week about our product uh, and then we pay you X amount um, for the next year, for example, or it might be something else, maybe it's more, more of a affiliate model or commission model, but why do you start there with that content deliverable? This, this is such, there is such a low, not loaded. There's so much to this yeah. um, of why we do not one kind of going back to social uh, organic social is just very limited. The, or, or, mm. the organic algorithm, very limited. Um, so I guess I can start there as a distribution channel, pay for posts. It's not worth it. What you pay that person straight up and up front for a post, even if it's one, two or three, you're not going to get your money's worth. Uh, even from a, just a, like, say there's no sales and you're just trying to get impressions, even from a CPM standpoint, it's going to be such a higher CPM in comparison to using that content in your own distribution, distribution channel being Facebook paid media. And a lot of the time this content will be served to this person's followers even without whitelisting. And again, we'll go into what that is, but we've seen that time and time again. Hey, my content was just served to my buddy who saw this. This is awesome. Really cool. I'm just like, oh, wow. Like Facebook is that smart and its ability to target. So, mm. and that CPM is like one fifth of the cost, one tenth of the cost. So that's why 
it doesn't make sense. Not to mention you don't really get sales from organic social and you can optimize that for Facebook as well, which is the main thing people really want here. Um, another reason feed posts are just incredibly coveted. Um, and this is where like an arbitrary opportunity is really created within the space right now that currently exists. They have been, it's probably my hypothesis is just like big brands, household brands, household name brands that don't really care about like spending big dollars on, you know, certain allocation of spend within marketing and being one of them. They, I think, inflated the market rate for feed posts, and these are incredibly coveted by influencers. So I think they have a very wrong uh, understanding of the value of what these are. So you get these really inflated price points when organic posts are a part of the deal structure. When in reality, like I'm saying, just the content is the most valuable piece, then I can just go distribute that through my own channels uh, in a more effective way at scale. Uh, in a much cheaper capacity. So when you compare, and this is this is really true, like if I just have somebody post, like, hey, can you just give me a feed post on your Instagram? Or can you just post a YouTube video? That can be like a thousand to 2000 bucks. If what I'm saying, what I already walked you through, like the sequence to get three videos and an image and IG story post, which an IG story post, by the way, is actually more powerful than an IG feed post, goes much further engagement, reach, frequency, um, driving traffic to the website, et cetera. We can get people at 300 bucks in comparisons. Like that makes no sense. I have full ownership of this content. I can distribute it forever across my own distribution channels. And they, and they posted as well. And it's one fifth, one tenth of the cost where they just posted once and I don't get to even use this content on my end. Like it, it doesn't make sense. Um, but that is the current landscape of the space. So it's another reason. Right. So there's, there's plenty, there's plenty there, but I'll let you yeah. ask some questions here. Right. So I, I, that's an interesting um, paradigm shift because I think when people think uh, influencer marketing, again, they're, they're always, uh, at least from, from my perspective, I always think of the end goal being again, sort of that, like Aaron Roger or uh, maybe like a, um, who's the subway guy. I'm blanking on his name. It was something Howard, uh, you know, but someone oh. who's basically just like a big the baseball player. Ambassador. Yeah. The baseball player. Um, yeah, Ryan Howard, Ron Howard. Yeah, yeah, Ryan Howard. Boom. You nailed okay. it. Ryan Howard. Okay. I thought so. I didn't want to get it wrong though. Ryan Howard, you know, eat fresh, something like that, where basically you have like a big brand ambassador, someone who's on your side, who's basically kind of bought in. But on the other end, like you're basically on the completely other end of the spectrum where you're basically just saying, we don't even need you to be uh, quote unquote in a long-term relationship. We just need the creative and we need your sort of buy-in. And we're basically going to do all the work for you to go promote it, distribute it and make the most of this creative that you've done for us instead of going and, you know, again, posting natively to their own channels. It, so I don't, so I do not, there is power and there is meaning and there's reason to organic social. It's, I'm just not going to abide and adhere to this pay to play model. The way that mm. we handle this is through seeding. So gotcha. the, the micros, the mid-tier, the macros that we're seeding that opt in, you know, to this for free of cost and become these advocates. Seeding and identifying 300 people per month, you will have a ton of traction with influencer posting every month on the happier brand. That's mm -hmm. how we do that, though. We're not going to engage people strictly for one-off posts and paying them to do so. I, I have no, I have no care for that. And that's just not the way to win mm -hmm. with that focus. 
that's not to say we don't focus on organic social. There is definite purpose there. And I do think the Ryan Howard example or the Aaron Rodgers on behalf of State Farm, there is, there is value in that as well. And there's significant brand lift and brand equity there. I just think you need to do your due diligence and work your way up by working with micros, then mid-tier people, then macros before you swing for the fences, figure out what influence persona, what demographic really resonates and converts on behalf of your brand in the kind of a micro to macro approach before scaling that type of investment. But not to, I, I just want to make sure that it's not, I'm not making a case for micros alone here. There is definite value in that macro. It's just, gotcha. you just need to, you need to hit a couple singles before you get Ryan Howard at the plate. Um, and that's really right. what I'm trying to communicate here. Um, right. And, but, and not everyone's going to be able to work with someone like Ryan Howard, right? No, it's it's no, a much more no. achievable thing to work with someone who's micro and then work your up to the mid tier or even a macro influencer. Right. And I think our, like at this point of the conversation, I think it's worth bringing up whitelisting. So if you genuinely do care about that influencer's audience as a distribution channel, the reason why we don't pay for posts here is, again, we have the ability to whitelist these people at this point. And what whitelisting is, by definition, is just to be able to serve ads from an influencer's handle, being their Instagram or Facebook page, into the people that follow them as an audience segment. And so I'm able to take ads, they're creative, what they would have, you know, quote unquote, posted on behalf of us, just send that content to us, we'll handle the copywriting, we'll handle the targeting, we'll build out the audience, which would be what Facebook allows. I wish there was some sort of screen share I could show the audience, but the last 365 day engagers, everybody who engaged with their content the last 365 days on Facebook and Instagram. So it aggregates this audience for you to be able to target with the content you get from the influencer. And so the benefits of this is, Okay, we can just go through it real quick. On organic social, again, reach, frequency, engagement, incredibly limited. You reach 10% of the audience with a post. Like that's typically the cap. So if there's a, you know, right. 100,000 followers, you reach 10,000 of them. Out of those 10,000 people, out of that 100,000 altogether, two to 3% tops. That's like standard and it's pretty good. Engage with it. Actually, you know, comment, really, you know, consume that content in a powerful way. Two to 3%. And then cost of it, again, we've gone through this, a post, it's typically more expensive than what it is we're trying to do with whitelisting ability, three videos, one image, et cetera. And then ROI wise, organic social is not really a great mechanism to invest in, uh, to pay to play for an ROI on it. It's just, again, it's kind of a broken and dead model here. But when you run it as paid media, as Facebook ads with whitelisting, reach unlimited. You have, you have full control of the distribution here. I can reach everybody within that audience segment as many times as I want frequency wise. Not only that, but there's a customer journey here. I can figure out who watched 75% of this initial touch point, the content that I'm running, who was driven to the website, who abandoned cart and added a cart out of these people from this content. And then if you remember that creative brief where we're sourcing two or three videos from each people, I can retarget these people with a full customer journey in comparison to these organic posts where I'm just you know, this influencer posts three times a month for me, it's retargeting the same audience segment with no customer journey at all. Uh, it's right. the same segment. There's no follow-up with people that went to the website speaking directly to them specifically. There's no follow-up with people that abandoned cart. There's no, there's no follow-up with people that purchased and actually became a part of your community. So these are all things that whitelisting, if you care about their audience as a distribution channel, enables you to do. So Corey, I'm going to rely on you to figure out if that made sense at large. Whitelisting is a very foreign topic to a lot of people when you compare it from organic to sponsored. So yeah. I would love for you to try to dissect this a little bit with me. 
Right. I, and I love that it has a name because that makes it a lot easier to talk through and sort of chat about. But whitelisting is such an interesting concept because, again, I think um, it, it's an arbitrage opportunity, right? Where Whereas the old model was you pay to play, there's one post for, or, you know, it's X dollars per post. Now, in this case, you say, hey, we'll basically do the posting on your behalf and we'll get to control how much we're spending and how much people, how many people we actually want to reach with this. Where, mm -hmm. where did this concept come from? Was this something... Uh, that was like pioneered pretty recently. It's something that's always been around. Um, or basically, when did this model sort of uh, form into something that was uh, actually like proven strategy to work? I think the term, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I think the term whitelisting was formed within like the last year. But I would say my introduction to it was three years ago when, we, when I was building out the influencer department at Common Thread. We were just calling it advertiser access. We just reached out to influence in the same way that brands were giving us, you know, access and ability to run ads on behalf of their brand and just giving us like partnership access as an agency to run. Influencers are no different. They're set up as, you know, these business profiles or creator profiles that are able to give the same level of access. So we just thought, oh, this would be really cool. We can you know, run this content and drive it, the traffic to, you know, this website on behalf of this brand to generate sales. Um, and so I didn't know anybody else at that time doing that. Um, but that's where this really all came to fruition, this customer journey, what we're able to do, advertiser access. It's just become adopted as like kind of the market term influencer whitelisting that we've now been using. So my introduction to it uh, was that common thread and doing paid media funnels with influencers. We called it advertiser access back then. I think in the last year, a real marketplace has formed. I mean, there's platforms out there like Lumanu is one of them that makes the steps to granting such access with influencers like at a click of a button. Um, now we don't, we don't necessarily use that. And actually Facebook brand class manager is actually creating a solution for this free of cost as well. Again, jump on there, go get on it. You need to do so if you care about this as a channel. Um, but there's an entire space around whitelisting at this point platforms wise over the last year. Yeah. So when you're pitching that idea to uh, an influencer, um, I, I would assume that maybe since it is a newer concept that so you ha sort of have to explain it, you have to educate people. Like Every how time. are you pitching it and explaining it in a way that makes sense where they can sort of get bought into the idea. And that also makes sense for them sort of financially as a influencer. Yeah. Great question. Um, so we have a set of instructions for them to follow really step-by-step to be able to, to grant such access. Um, and then I also have a screen share video that I send alongside that, those set of instructions that kind of walk them through step-by-step step of me being the influencer. Like, hey, I'm the influencer in this scenario. This is the steps in real time, what it looks like for you um, and what I need you to do. But at the end of the day, all they're doing is just typing in our business partner ID on Facebook and granting access there. From a negotiation standpoint of what I'm trying to communicate, and how much I'm paying them for this is, hey, this does not show up on your feed. Because again, going back just to the psychology of this right now, that's where they think their most value is. This is a foreign thing to a lot of them. More people are becoming more familiar with what it is and how it works, but there is no understanding of the value still. And so that's where that arbitrage opportunity is. And they think that them posting on their feed is significantly of greater value than me being able to run this to their audience literally every day. Um, it's like them posting 30 times in a month on behalf of my brand with different pieces of content instead of the same one. So that understanding and that lack of knowledge leads to this opportunity here. Um, 
So the cost of it, there really isn't much. Right, the minute I say, hey, this doesn't show up on your feed, it's just like, what? It doesn't show on my feed? <laughs> Rad. Uh, okay, we'll just do this for, I'm, I'm cool with 300 bucks. I'm cool with 500 bucks. Because um, we typically try to book that into uh, the deal structure as well. Hmm. Well, how are you, um, for someone who's maybe unfamiliar with uh, the deal structure, you mentioned that there's sort of like a, you know, standard format, but like, I assume that it's basically a contract type, right? You want to own the rights to the content you said in, in perpetuity. Um, what are some of the, uh, the things that you're keeping in mind that you're weaving into the contract to make sure that, uh, it's going to be successful on both ends, like contract tips, things that you've learned, you know, added to the sort of, uh, or amended to the contract over time that are important to the deal structure. Yeah. Um, well, you just named like the most important piece, full ownership of the content for the brand uh, in perpetuity across all marketing channels. Um, at a minimum, at a minimum, say there's pushback somehow, some way um, across social. So you can use it as paid media as well, because that's the most that's the most important channel you want to be able to leverage this on. Obviously, we're identifying working with creators because they've proven to be able to build social clout with uh, people on that platform specifically. And we think if they can do it organically, we can do the same thing and win across all these placements through paid media with them. So at a minimum within the contract, we want to make sure that we have the ability to use it across our social uh, networks, uh, paid media included. Uh, outside of that, I mean, best practices, again, the deliverables we typically source is three videos, one image, um, an IG story post. But again, the content is the most important piece. Three videos, it's just kind of a sweet spot where we can get a diverse, like, it's like, hey, there's three touch points at the funnel here, prospecting, re-engagement, remarketing. These are all terms for prospecting, top of the funnel, people that have never seen your product, re-engagement, we typically target people, this is the second touch point, social engagers of the brand, people that watch 75% of the first video, third touch point, remarketing, people that have been to the website recently, and then abandoned cart, initiate checkout is the fourth touch point. So. Hmm. that's why we try to get three videos from each person, try to speak to each level of the funnel here. Um, outside of that, I'm trying to give you everything here, Corey. Um, honestly, yeah, the most important piece is just content ownership and hmm. where you're able to use it. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be a big, a big one. So then when you're actually, you have the content, you have the creative, you're loading it into uh, Facebook business manager and ready to start sort of scaling up ad spend. Um, like, what kind of range should people expect to get started versus scale up? Like what kind of investment is required um, since it is, you know, sort of a, um, it's different from the pay to pay to play model where it's, you know, X number of uh, X dollars per post, where now it's basically you choose sort of the budget, but like what's needed to get started and what do you ideally want to get someone up to? Yeah. I love that question when brands ask it too. Um, what, what we initially try to do is just set a CPA target where they're winning and they're in the green. And so long as we're hitting that, like, don't you want me to spend millions of dollars at the end of the day? Why would you want me right. to stop? So we try to get them to convince them of that sort of uh, mindset, but uh, everyone still craves like, okay, but what can I, you know, budget for this? So we like to say you want to at least spend three times the amount you invested in the content to get the most bang for your buck. But again, like that's still kind of a poor answer. The answer here is what is your CPA target? Let's scale against that and spend as much as we can at that margin that we're making profit wise. So that's how I communicate it. If there's whitelisting involved with the influencer, again, where you're able to target their audience, we like to say you want to hit a frequency of two. Uh, meaning you serve all the content that you're getting 
uh, from the influencer to everybody within that uh, audience of their social engagers on Facebook and Instagram, a minimum of twice per week. And so you can follow an easy formula to figure out what level of spend it takes to do just that uh, prior to launching these ads. So if there's whitelisting involved, I would follow that formula. If there's not, spend a minimum of three times the amount that you actually invested in the influencer uh, within paid media. So those are two different approaches you can think about budgeting wise. Is that three times the amount that they paid for the creative uh, per month? Or is that just like a one-time thing sort of prove, prove it out per month? Yeah. Okay. So for example, if someone paid uh, $300 for that package of um, the content deliverables, then you want to be in like the thousand dollars per month range. Um, at a minimum. At a minimum. Yeah. But I would assume that that goes way up. I mean, uh, what is the range that you work with? Is it a thousand to 10,000, a thousand to a hundred thousand, a thousand to a million dollars a month? Oh, again, this advice is typically just for people that are strapped for cash. I mean, there's people spending millions of dollars on paid media per month. Yeah. And so you uh, think about, about it, like, this is wild that you got this content for like pennies on the dollar, especially right. with studio shoots. It's like that same level of amount of assets for a studio shoot that you're getting from five creators on the month can cost anywhere between like 10 to 50,000, even a hundred thousand, depending on who it is. Um, mm. So it's creative at a much more inexpensive rate. And a lot of the time, again, because this content's native to the platform, outperforms these studio shoot creatives. Less expensive, more effective. You got to get in this space and win here. There's opportunity. Yeah. And speaking of the creative, like, I would assume that a lot of that original creative is a little bit more um, native or not casual, but it looks a little bit more DIY from the creator, the influencer themselves versus a more studio shoot, which is more professional, buttoned up. It might look like something produced uh, for sure know, in, in a studio. Like, does that matter? Do you find that the, one outperforms the other? Well, you're talking to a very biased opinion here, uh, <laughs> but, but no, I mean, at common thread, you, you understand, like I was working with every single creative asset within the portfolio of content on behalf of brand. And we always, and I still do, you need to have all of it. The name of the game in Facebook, it's becoming more and more automated. And like mm. the gurus of Facebook paid media, like I take everything with a grain of salt, man. Uh, Facebook is becoming an incredible machine learning system that can really mm. target and scale on your behalf more and more so without the actual end media buyer doing much. Like these guys know how to find the people that will convert. The main right. ingredient to success, the biggest variable is the creative you're running, the customer journey you're creating. And we always recommend a diverse portfolio of content, influencer generated content always being a part of it. We do see it being a top performing asset a lot of the time, but we don't say, hey, this is going to fully take the place of the rest of these assets. We just always recommend this being a part of it. Um, and a big part of it. And, and I will stay true to the fact that and hammer this point home again, it's always less expensive. Uh, and we do a lot of the time see it being more effective to go back to your, your point that we both brought up here. It's native content to the feed. People are used to seeing people on selfie mode, you know, speaking to the camera, they're on FaceTime, talking to the camera, people are used to this. So it's just what people are used to seeing. It's native to the platform and it's not as salesy. Um, it's not yeah. as, it doesn't look like an ad per se. It's just content and it's relatable content uh, for mm -hmm. people, you know, scrolling through it. What do you, you had mentioned that there's sort of a, uh, 
a standard, you know, thing that you're asking people to do of, Hey, here's how we, you know, we want you to get people engaged in the first three seconds. Here's a couple of the talking points and you're, you're customizing that for each one of the brands and of course to, to the product itself. Um, but in general, like what is the creative that you're after that makes a really good, uh, you know, end result for the, the, the ad buying that you're doing? Yeah. So, I mean, it's case, it's case by case at the end of the day, but some, um, cause in every, in every ad account, I always recommend like we can make our suggestions of what we've seen work for other brands in different spaces, but if they haven't played in this space for, if they haven't tested influencer marketing, um, we want to get as diverse as possible with the creative that we're, you know, having the influencers put together for us. And so when I say that, like, let's get testimonials, let's get unboxings, let's get product reviews, product tutorials, let's get, uh, videos that, you know, put on display a discount or a promo. Um, let's do all these different video content types. Let's get a video like they do on TikTok, where it's like they throw a shirt out of the corner of the room and it just pops up on their chest all of a sudden. Like, let's get all of this from creators and run it. And again, Facebook will scale the top performing content out of that bunch on your behalf. And then from there, you can make decisions on, you know, okay, the testimonials are really converting. Let's get more of those in our next batch of five creators that we tap on are all those people that became brand advocates from the seeding campaign. That's how we're thinking about this. So if you're doing it for the first time uh, within the influence space, again, just try to get as many different types um, of content as you possibly can and then scale what works best from there. Hmm. Okay. So speaking of scaling, Let's just say that uh, we have sort of the first success with whitelisting an influencer and it's working. There's a positive return on, on, on ad spend. Uh, you, can, you can prove out the model. Like where do you go from there? Do you then look to scale up the ad spend? Do you look to scale up the number of influencers that you're working with? Do you scale up the type of influencer that you're working with? You know, going from a, a micro to a mid-market to a macro or talk me through sort of where you go from there. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so creative wise, it just depends how much they're spending, right? So all content or yeah, I mean, at a certain extent, all content will experience creative fatigue. The creative will get exhausted at some point. We like to replenish the ad account every 30 days. And that's why we get you know, five creators. And not to mention, by the way, you're not just running these 15 unique videos as is, like you can create iterations off them. And when I say 15 videos, by the way, the three videos from five content creators, 15 unique videos. You want right. to be able to iterate off it. You, you definitely do want to run it as raw content. Make sure you caption all of these. That makes the world a difference. People typically don't click, you know, listen to sound. So you always mm -hmm. caption them. But you want, to, you want to start the video at different places of the content that they give you. Figure out which first three seconds is actually the one that's generating the most traction, engagement, sales. That's one piece to iterate off it. Then, you know, do some text overlay on screen, create mashables. And when I say mashable, like piece, different pieces of the content that you got from all the influencers together to make it look like your products everywhere. Like create all these different iterations to create uh, just a vast set of content for you to run. So you can ultimately get like 40 to 50 assets out of this. Um, or honestly, as many as you want, uh, depending on how much time you have a designer editor on this on your team's behalf. Um, but so depending on the level of spend that you have though per month, like if you're spending a million dollars, you're going to need to get more creators involved because all those assets will get exhausted over the course of the mm -hmm. month. But if you're spending 10,000 bucks, you know, that can last you six months, um, to a year. I mean, certain, certain assets are that. Um, so it just depends on the level of spend. 
you're spending on much more, yeah, we need to, we need to work with like 10, 20 creators per month. Um, if you're not, Hey, I mean, invest in this for one month and you can just spend in paid media over the next three to six months and just gauge, you know, you can gauge the last seven day performance within your ad account and just see, you know, where is it going to start to fall off? And when it does, that's when, you know, Hey, it's time to re up the ante here and get some more influencer content. So that's how I think about that. And also it's worth mentioning, again, the most valuable aspect of this is the content itself. We don't always whitelist influencers. If the brand truly cares and if we think there's a great opportunity here to target their own audience as a distribution channel, 100%, we will. But the main value on it is the content itself. We don't always put that a part of the deal structure though. When it comes to working with a macro, if we've done you know, three, six months, year, if we've done and laid the foundations of identifying which influencers, what content works best to make that investment make sense. Yes. At that point, we are looking for that macro um, to uh, be that Ryan Howard of the brand, to be that Aaron Rodgers, of the brand to create content with, we will definitely whitelist the macro influencer because we do want to run ads to their audience. Um, and we typically structure a funnel. So if we have micros and macros involved in this, what you want to use the macro for, again, you can just say at a minimum whitelisting ability, three videos, an image, et cetera. We'll just stick to the same template deal structure here for everybody. That would be perfect for your top of the funnel prospecting. People that have never encountered or heard of your brand, your product or service. This is going to offer immediate brand credibility, immediate brand validity. Oh, holy crap. Aaron Rodgers is like, he's representing this brand. He's talking about these guys. I'm interested. Like, you're probably going to click through, especially again, given the targeting that you're doing, this content will probably resonate with whoever you're targeting with Aaron Rodgers. So that's going to be your first touch point. Your second touch point, I would even potentially still run a piece of content from Aaron, um, maybe offering like a discount promo code, a sale, like, Hey, they're interested, but let's, let's get them to go and walk them to the checkout line here with this little added, you know, step of the funnel where he's offering them something slight. Um, also mix in micro influencers at that point as a second touch point, like, Oh, Aaron Rodgers talking about it. Oh, but you have all these other people that maybe, you know, the person doesn't know per se, but again, they're really good content creators and can sell what you're trying to get across. So it looks like, you know, just every, everyday individuals are using this as well. And then at the next touch point, that's where you put those matchable ads in. Now you're really, you're really tapping into psyche here at this point, like, holy shysta, everyone's using this. And this thing is everywhere. Aaron Rodgers is using this. These matchable ads are just communicating the fact that everyone's using it. So you're instilling the sense of everyone has it. I need it. I need to buy it now. And that's kind of an overall macro and micro funnel you can ultimately build out once you've done the due diligence you need to, to invest in something like that. I mean, it's like a, the ultimate form of, of social proof, right? Where you're showing yeah. at the top end, these macro influencers at the bottom end, you're showing uh, the, the, the micro, and then in between, you're showing the mashups of all of them in between. You're sort of uh, not creating the illusion, but you're creating the effect of, I am the only person in this world without this product, or right. you know, I, I would be dumb not to have this product, which is a really powerful kind of psychological technique of, uh, of using influencers, again, not just within one influencer's audience of, oh, this person I follow uses this product, but all these people that I follow use this one product. Right, right. Yeah, you nailed it. You're creating an environment where you, that are, the person receiving these ads is the only person that doesn't have it. So, right. I mean, it is an illusion at the end of the day. Not everyone has it, but that's the customer yeah. journey we're creating. And that's what you're able to do through influencers. Yeah, and, and that's that's the feeling of it. What, what do you feel like are the, um, the bottlenecks 
and the most uh, time-intensive parts of managing influencers and these kind of programs? Um, and then how do you mitigate those? Um, no, that's a good question. And to be honest, that is the biggest thing about influencer. It's just time. Um, and that's why you see me on Twitter and that's why I come on here and like literally give you our entire blueprint. I'm giving you step-by-step step how we do things and the, the tech platforms that we use. So at the end of the day, like this is a lot of labor and it takes a team to be able to execute it the right way. Um, and so how do we go about that? Um, the strategy that we have in place, the people that we put in a position to handle every step of this that we've just kind of laid out. Yeah, we do this on behalf of clients every day. This is the way we make our living, right? So for a brand to try to do this without kind of the blueprint to do so or the understanding of like this probably might be more than one person handling influencer fresh out of college at $60,000 per year. That's where you might run into the problems of uh, the influencer just didn't work for us. Um, it's just, it just takes a lot more than that. Uh, and it's a lot of work, a lot of time. So we just have processes in place to automate those systems. Yeah. To, to really handle every aspect of the process, not just, you know, each process individually of, okay, we, you know, we can check that box, but we can check all these boxes collectively because there really is so much involved in an influencer program. Like you said, between seeding the product all the way to, scaling up the ad spend uh, and right. or reaching out to new influencers and then sort of this virtuous cycle that you're trying to trying to cultivate. Um, so let's play devil's advocate here for a second. Like what, what if an influencer doesn't work out or maybe you didn't get the results uh, that you want, even if they were maybe one of those kind of top five people, um, but you get the creative and, and the ad spend uh, just doesn't seem to be profitable. Yeah. I mean, Corey, I'm not going to sit here and say all five creators just crushing it every month for us that we identify. Right. But again, the beautiful thing about Facebook is it's a machine learning system that scales the top performing content and puts the money behind the content it thinks it's going to perform best that resonates with the audiences you're targeting. So honestly, man, even if we find one video and I'm just going to play like the, the hard opposite side here, if we find one piece of content yeah. that is just absolutely crushing, that content will last a full month and it will receive all the spend. So as long as we can get one, and I'm not saying here that we only find one out of the 15, <laughs> it's just playing the exact opposite side, that still is going to work. And if we can do that on a month to month basis, you're winning. You are absolutely winning. Um, now from the standpoint of like, damn, I feel like I didn't do my job very well. We're only one of them really crush. That's all that's going to happen there. But whether you find five or one, the spend will go to the top form piece of content and that will scale. That will receive all the ad budget. That will get the conversions at the lowest CPA as possible. Um, and that will still be winning. So yeah, there's always going to be video content that ultimately doesn't win, but that's why we're scaling and testing that diverse set of content to figure out what does. And then we create more of that moving forward and we continue to do mm -hmm. so on a month to month basis. Yeah. Not, not to toot the horn uh, too hard, but what, what stands out to me is that it really takes a lot of the risk out of the equation because again, going back to that old kind of traditional pay to play model um, where if you did, if you did need to even sort of pay to figure out, you know, who it is that's going to make a good partner and that resonates with the audience and that is profitable, whether it's through organic posts or sponsored ads, or just you know straight up whitelisting through your own uh, through your own audience, um, that can be really expensive, right? If you're paying thousands to tens of thousands of dollars per uh, influencer per relationship, whereas if you're doing the work up front to start from the bottom, give first, 
get the assets, uh, and then basically just let Facebook choose which one is profitable. Then you um, you get rid of all the the risk of spending a whole bunch of money upfront that doesn't end up panning out as good creative or even profitable uh, relationships. Well, I'm glad. I'm, I'm really glad that I wasn't too scattered in this conversation because you just, you nailed the process. That's exactly right. There's you limit risk as much as possible. No upfront costs. You identify the brand advocates who are actually going to be organic lovers of your product or service, which will lead to less expensive rates, great rapport, more content, then scale it and allow Facebook and lean into the machine learning system to identify mm. the top creators and top creative for your brand product service specifically, and then yeah. just continue to work off that and do yeah. it month to month. Do you want to see it every month? You want to identify content creators to give you content every month and then spend in paid media every month. Those are, that's mm. like, that's what we call our three pronged approach, our blueprint. Seed content creators actually giving you content every month through contract paid media spend do that monthly. Yeah, I love that. Now, most people would think of influence market again, I think in the context of uh, e-commerce and uh, direct to consumer and a little bit more like consumer brands, right? Does it also work for other types of businesses or industries like um, B2B or software or um, even other types of maybe media businesses? Uh, for sure. I mean, there's just less people doing it, right? Which only screams mm. opportunity in my mind. And I, I, just, I really am begging certain brands, like, just give it a try. Just give it a try. I swear. Mm. <laughs> so, and we have worked with certain B2B businesses and it's worked out well. But yeah, I mean, if you think about it, the term influencer is just, right? It's somebody that has influence over an audience uh, on behalf of a product service. And there's that person in every industry. Now, it may not look like the same as in D2C, but there's very much so power in it. So like one of the companies that uh, we worked with was Snack Nation. We were building out um, a funnel for them. And I put this on Twitter, but the funnel is just different in a way. And we we're trying to figure out who's going to be our, like our macro influencer. And we ultimately ended up settling on this woman, Claude Silver. She's the chief heart officer of VaynerMedia. So Gary V's like COO, chief heart officer. Uh, a lot of the people within the HR world like look up to her. Like I was asking around like a common thread and we had this woman, Paniota, who's just a stud, absolute stud at her job, um, head of HR and handles all that. She's just like obsessed with this woman. And she's like, everyone just leans in and tunes into her for what to do. And so we wanted to work with her to create content around, hey, they want to gift and seed these snacks to all the people that are working remotely right now as a way to you know, care for them and show their employees that you know, they work for a company that shows love. You know? And so we worked with her to create content. You know, Snack Nation is a great way to do this. Once offices open up back up as well, this is a great way to replenish and you know, take care of your employees with the snacks they're providing. And we were able to create a full funnel around, you know, her content and run as paid media. And so in the same way, you know, the end buyer for the snack nation, it's a B2B business are people with an HR. Okay. Who has influence over these people uh, who lit tunes in and listens to these people on the decision that they make on behalf of their businesses, Claude Silver. She's the goat of that space. Everyone tunes in her. Okay. We want to use her say, this is the snacks that we buy on behalf of our employees. You should buy these snacks for yours type thing. Obviously not in that way as that salesy, but that's the premise, right? And that's, yeah. that's kind of what led to the funnel that we ultimately built out on Facebook ads. But what you see is a lot of these B2B businesses aren't even investing in Facebook ads. Um, they're not even on, you know, doing that alone, let alone an influencer, but where they, that just creates cheaper CPM. So it screams opportunity. 
you're going to be able to do this at a much cheaper rate than all these D2C businesses that are fighting to get, you know, in front of people at a much more expensive rate. So if there's a time as a B2B business to win through influencer and paid media on Facebook ads, it's definitely now. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. Do you think that it needs to have some sort of mass appeal or can it be a pretty, you know, niche product that only appeals to a certain number of businesses or types of people or a certain uh, person within uh, you know, a particular role, for example. Yeah, I think, I think it would definitely work for both. I just think you'd have, if, if it's a limited audience, all that's going to, all that changes the amount that you invest in it. Right. Because mm-hmm. Facebook, how it's charging you is based on the amount of people that it's being served to. So if it's a limited audience, you obviously won't need to spend as much, um, where, yeah, I think that's the only difference. You still have the same funnel you should build out. There's still going to be an influencer that has, you know, clout over that narrow group. There's somebody that influences any group, right? So you just need to figure out and identify who that is and then speak to that audience in the way that resonates with them. Um, so the only difference in my mind is it's just less expensive to reach all those people with such content and the customer journey you're trying to take them through. Hmm. Yeah. So three years ago, you're one of the first ones to sort of recognize this. Uh, I, d- I this. don't know that. I just, I, that's all I, I didn't hear of anybody doing it. I don't want to claim to be the pioneer here. Yeah, yeah. As far as we know, you're one of the first ones to pioneer sort of the strategy, um, but, but as, as well as give it a name and sort of give it some light evangelize it as, as you're doing here on this podcast. Um, and now you've been doing it for quite some time. It's like, what are the, some of the, the larger shifts um, or other trends that you're seeing now in the industry going forward? Yeah. Um, I feel like I've given you pretty much everything up to date, but shifts wise, hmm. you know, the thing that I see people doing wrong I'll just say this and I'll, I'll call yeah. it out. Whitelisting, the way that people are going about it, there's so many platforms out there that are just making the value add of influencer, the just ability to serve ads from their page and their handles. There's a lot of platforms out there that strictly just do that alone and they don't give you the actual ability to target their audience, um, their followers or engagers, which is just like, how is this even being sold? And so it's just these sales pitches that are full of crap quite honestly. And I'm not going to name names of platforms here. Um, and I know I said Lumana earlier, but that's actually not even one of them. They just make that step convenient, but there's platforms out there that have uh, influencers on them that promote whitelisting and saying, Hey, you'll get three, four times, you know, ROAS that you're experiencing currently just by serving ads from influencers pages alone in comparison to your ads, which is just, it's just not true. We've, we have visibility in over $250 million in ad spend and we've tested, you know, running ads from brand pages and influencers pages. Um, and there is zero correlation to running that ad from an influencers page and having greater value than the brand's page when you're not targeting the influencers audience. Um, mm-hmm. We would recommend if you have the ability to do so testing both again, just to allow an given brand or service, it can be different. And it, again, the budget will go towards whichever one will scale and optimize at greater you know, success rates. But that pitch is absolute BS. Um, and you always want to ask these platforms or these agencies that you're looking to work with for whitelisting. Make sure you ask, do I have the ability to build audiences off their engagers? to run as ads to these audiences. Cause that's the main value out of whitelisting to be able to serve ads from their page to the people that follow them. Right. That's the whole purpose of it. Um, yeah. So just be weary of that. That's, that's, that is a trend going on in the space right now where a lot of agencies uh, or a lot of platforms within the influencer space are just pushing the ability to serve ads from influencers pages, the value add where it's just not. And if you look at a heat chart of an ad as an end user, 
the first thing people look at, and this is if you acquire all this tension, right? Which is hard in itself. The first thing they look at though is the content itself, the video, the image. The second thing is the headline, which is at the bottom of the ad, right next to the call to action. And that's the next thing they look at, the shop now button to learn more. Then it's the body copy. And then it's the page that's actually serving the ad. So it's like, it's at the bottom of the barrel here. Um, right. So unless it's the followers of the individual, it's not going to have much of an impact. And again, across $250 million of visibility and ad spend, we have seen zero correlation with that. So I just want to make sure we call that out. Great call. Out. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's a fantastic insight. So starting to wrap up here, um, I'd love to take a look at your swipe file, quote unquote, sort of uh, if you could riff off a couple of examples of maybe some influencer marketing programs or ads or campaigns in particular that you reference as sort of standouts. Um, could you walk me through examples? A couple of examples. I know you mentioned uh, Native Deodorant, uh, Laser Away, Kalo, mm -hmm. uh, Hair Gone Diff Eyewear a few times, but could you just riff off a couple that you find um, really notable in your personal swipe file? Yeah. So one is worth for sure mentioning is uh, Kalo. And Cody really spearheaded this campaign for seeding, um, did a phenomenal job. Man. So every month, yeah, we were doing basically what we had communicated, seeding a variety of different people, micros, getting content organically posted, building that community out in a really powerful way. Uh, and Kayla has done a phenomenal job at that. And they also seeded like mid-tier people. A lot of athletes got it in the hands of Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper's organically posting about it. He was the one that opted in for it as well. Uh, people in NBA locker rooms doing locker room drops, uh, baseball, football, basketball. Built, uh, Cody built a phenomenal relationship with Isaiah Thomas, um, mm. uh, which at the time he wasn't like, like all that, but just made, remained rapport, stayed in touch. Every time a new product came out, made sure we seeded all these people, especially these big dogs, like Isaiah Thomas is an, you know, he's an influencer amidst a room of influencers. So like, that's right. where we really want to, you know, this is our ability to get in front of other people and other networks that have influence over their individual audiences. So uh, over all-star weekend, Cody actually went out there and continued to build a relationship with him. And then when he got traded to the Cavaliers, did a locker room drop to Isaiah. Hey, we wanted to take care of you here. Uh, we think you'd love the product. Hey, and feel free here. Here's some other rings as well. If any of your teammates want it, you know, feel free to you know, give it to other people. Got it in the hands of LeBron James. Um, LeBron James starts wearing it, starts posting. And like, he's talking about it. It's like, whoa. Wow. And now he's like, when he signs up to the Lakers, he's wearing a customized Kalo ring. And so you think about just like earned media, like this is, this would be millions of dollars at, for LeBron James to wear this customized ring that Kalo gave him in this photo as he signs with the Lakers, like this monumental moment. And so it was just like, whoa, the power of seedings. This is wild right here. Um, and he became a brand advocate of it just through seeding, relationship building, getting in the hands of influencers that all have relationship with other influencers. And it's just this compound effect that like, that's the most, you know, obviously top of the top seeding success story here, not to mention all the other value adds that we've, you know, discussed like cheap content, great relationships, with a lot of people build that community, but that's a, that's a big brag on behalf of my that's partner. That's crazy. Cody. Yeah, I yeah. mean LeBron James has got to be the, the the trophy of uh, <laughs> influencers. Yeah, it was wild. So that's one of them from a seating standpoint. Um, Laser way, what's interesting is, and this will touch on something we haven't talked about. Um, working with micro influencers uh, in comparison to macro uh, from the beginning. Obviously, we've discussed like what influencers work, convert at lower price points, but 
through whitelisting, you have the ability, like you're not limited in audience size when it comes to whitelisting. Yes, you are to their immediate engagers, like people that follow them on Instagram and social on Facebook. So if it's a micro influencer, maybe collectively it's an audience size of a hundred thousand within just those alone in comparison to macro who could have obviously millions, but what you're able to do on Facebook ads, again, it's probably foreign. So maybe we shouldn't even brought this up. But I'm going to anyways, you're able to build what are called lookalike audiences. And basically yeah. that's Facebook's ability to say, Hey, okay, here is this micro influencers uh, followers on Instagram and Facebook spit out uh, audience of millions of people that are most similar to this set of people that are most likely to convert them, but have this product or service that we're pushing all unique to this audience, right? So you're able to build out these lookalike audiences that are super powerful for you to target through your ads with this influencer's content. Stack those all up in a campaign, target all of them. And so this is the laser weight case study, which was super interesting to me, man. So we had a target CPA of like 40 bucks and with this micro influencer, and we spent like a lot of like tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So like it's definitely proven. This wasn't like a couple dollars got lucky thing. Their lookalike audience, the target was a $40 CPA. Their, their lookalike audience was this top of the funnel prospecting achieved a $14 CPA. So it was like plus 60% performance across what they were looking to achieve, let alone what they were, what they were hitting uh, previously mm. over the entire funnel. So it just makes a case for like people that doubt working with micros as well. And like ways you're able to leverage them and use them within paid media. And that's the power of Facebook able to aggregate, new audiences for you to target when you're using influencers. So that was a really cool case study. Absolutely crushed. And the most powerful audience wasn't even an engager audience at that point, which it typically is, but this lookalike audience outperformed it um, yeah, wow. significantly. So that's another cool one. Um, Diff Iwer was just, they, yeah. I mean, for them, this was super early on uh, for their business, but what was cool about it was, they didn't really uh, adhere to the strategy that we're laying out micro to macro, but they were kind of on their way out a little bit. They were struggling and they spent their entire budget on Khloe Kardashian, built out a custom line with her, um, did the whole, just went all in studio shoot, content at home on her iPhone, whitelisting access, went all in on her, put the rest of their budget and paid media behind it. And it just took off skyrocketed it was like their first influencer partnership they just went all in on uh, chloe wow. kardashian but then from there on out they implemented like a ton of micro influencers a ton of mid-tier influencers a ton of macro influencers did it on a month-to-month -month basis and really did it the right way but it just shows like you know i think they swung for the fences and got it incredibly right and now i think other brands you should do due diligence and get to that point but it just shows you what you're able to do when you do identify that right person and what's able to happen. They got like a 10 X man. It was, it was crazy. Wow. Um, which is not something I'm promising through influencer marketing here as well. This is just another case study. Take it. Yeah. For what may. Um, but it just shows you what can happen when you find that, that right individual at a macro level. Yeah. And I do I think that. I should mention that because I feel like I'm super skewed towards talking about micros and the value of it. But again, when you do find that right person, you do do your due diligence incredibly powerful. Yeah, that's huge. Any other um, case studies that you feel like are interesting, not from the perspective of like, this was a massive success or just sort of like top of the line, but that um, were surprising in a way, or maybe were a little bit different than, uh, than the others in some unique way. Hmm. That's a good question. For sure. That laser ray one, that was eye opening to me alone with look like audiences. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think what you see, man, and this isn't necessarily a case study, but it's just, it's interesting, like whitelisting um, and seeing what is really the variable that works. And I know I've been harping on this, but like when you look at influencers, you do think the value add from the outside looking in is, hey, they have this captured audience and that's the most valuable thing, being able to put content in front of them. And that's where people go to organic. They probably, if they don't know about whitelisting, their ability to do that. But it's just their content, man. That's really what sells. Um, so again, whitelisting is, the main thing that we're sourcing for is just video content, who's creating and who can sell. And so the correlation for why those are influencers is because these are people that have proven to create video content, great still imagery, whatever it may be, to build out this engaged audience with their content uh, from an organic standpoint, that's where they get their followers. So if they can do it there, in the same line of thought, that content can win through Facebook, paid media, Facebook ads, same placements across the board. We're just controlling the distribution. And Facebook has proven time and time again across every case study that we've ever created, across every brand that we do this on behalf of, they're able to find people outside of their followers that this content not only resonates with, but that converts people. So mm. it's just the main value of influencers is content creation ability. Time and time again, that is, is being hammered home across every brand that we work with. And that's what remains true. So that, and that's something that people don't really grasp a lot of the time, you know, so it's just worth hammering here. And I know I have throughout, it sounds like probably like a broken record, but that is the variable. Yeah. Uh, well, again, I think it's worth hammering and, and really, really harping on because uh, the crux and sort of the differentiator isn't really the technical media buying anymore. It really is no. the creative, right? And so oh, yeah. if the creative is a unique advantage, then what are all the ways that we can make that an advantage and unique ways we can leverage our own creative, others' creatives, uh, influencers, right? Become a big part of that equation. And so that's really what makes the case for why it is such an important part. Yeah. And to be honest, some will say that's probably controversial because there are so many gurus out there trying to claim that they have the exact strategy. But yeah. I mean, just for the listeners, like who are you going to trust? Facebook's data pool to make decisions on your behalf or some media buyer's limited experience in spending a couple million dollars in ad spend? Like 200, I've said 250 million visibility into it on my end. That is still so finite and so limited. Facebook has billions, you know, to go off of in order to make targeting decisions on your behalf. And that's what you're leaning into. So creative and creating a customer journey is the most important piece to success and scale. Yeah, it's huge. Well, my last question for you is my, what I call my guy Raz question. So for all the success that you've had personally, as well as on behalf of your clients and with the influencers, how much would you attribute to luck and sort of happenstance versus uh, hard work and um, you making it happen? Um, huh. I mean, life is a sequence of luck a lot of the time, but you have to do your part, right? You have to respond to the opportunities presented to you and you have to be prepared for them. So I'd say a mixed, mixed bag, but I would say the most fortunate time, the transition that I had from athletes first to common thread and ultimately becoming Taylor holidays, entrepreneur apprentice was the most lucky, fortunate uh, period of my professional career, being able to get that, that's where that visibility and all this ad spend comes from, right? And all this experience of where to really leverage and win with influencers comes from. If I didn't have that experience um, and just that mentor in Taylor Holiday to be able to be under his wing before going out two years ago and launching Kinship, yeah, I wouldn't be here uh, right now, regardless of the amount of hard work that I put in. So very fortunate, but I do like to think that, you know, 
I do work hard uh, on behalf of the clients that we have to be able to get them the service that they need to be successful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Taylor, you've been a wealth of knowledge. Appreciate you sharing your playbook, talking about all things influencer marketing, giving a bunch of insights into uh, how you guys do things, case studies, examples, examples that you've seen. Appreciate you coming on, sharing. Appreciate you having me, man. Look forward to coming back in a couple of years. Let's do Let's it. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks again to Taylor for dropping that influencer marketing masterclass. If you can, pop on Twitter and thank Taylor for sharing everything in this episode today and let him know what you thought. There's so many nuggets I want to pull out and talk about, but here are a few of my top takeaways. One is you don't have to drop a huge amount of money on a big influencer just to have a mediocre amount of success. In fact, you'll probably have more success working with micro-influencers in a way that's actually very affordable. And this really opens up a lot of opportunity for everyone and is vastly underutilized. Two is I love how they have strict instructions for the content they have influencers create and really guide them through the entire process. So many times an opportunity is wasted because you're not specific enough about what you want from someone. And Taylor and the team really put a lot of work into their SOP for the influencer content, and it's the key for getting consistent results with influencers. And finally, of course, how can you not be inspired by their approach to influencer white labeling? I mean, come on, that is real innovation right there. I love it. I hope you remember it. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swipefiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.